In the early hours of December 11, 1964, Barbara Cook was dozing on the couch in her Los Angeles home. She had only just gotten home at three in the morning and was waiting up for her husband, Sam, not wanting to go to bed alone. But Sam never came home. Instead, Barbara got a call from her sister, Beverly. Have you heard the news? Beverly said breathlessly. Barbara, still half asleep, checked her watch. Of course I haven't listened to the news, she told her sister. It's six o'clock in the damn morning. Beverly asked if Sam was home, to which Barbara just snorted. Of course he was still out. He partied into the early morning almost every night. Well, honey, Beverly said, he's dead. A heavy knock came at the cookhouse's front door. Barbara left the phone to see who was calling so early. As she walked towards the entrance, everything felt surreal. Barbara, still blinking away sleep, felt as if it were someone else's legs propelling her through the house, not her own. She opened the door to find two LAPD detectives on her front porch, badges in their hands. I'm on the phone talking to my sister, Barbara said in a calm, flat voice. Is my husband dead? The officers looked at each other in shock. They hadn't expected the news to reach Barbara so fast. But already, the word was spreading through the grapevine. Sam Cook, the King of Soul, was dead. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast podcasts for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on Sam Cook the King of Soul. After crossing over to mainstream success in the early 1960s, Sam was shot to death by Bertha Franklin, the night manager at a low-rent Los Angeles motel on December 11, 1964. Last week, we spoke about Sam Cooke's life and his burgeoning interest in civil rights activism in the years leading up to his murder. This week, we'll dive into the trial and aftermath of Sam's murder and try to shine a light on the real motives behind the tragedy. Just after 3 a.m. on December 11, 1964, Sam Cook burst into the manager's office at the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles. His date, a young woman named Lisa Boyer, feared he was going to rape her and fled from his hotel room. She found a nearby phone booth and called the cops. Drunk and raging, 
Sam was convinced that the manager, Bertha Franklin, was hiding Lisa Boyer. Fearing for her life, Bertha shot Sam in the chest with a 22 caliber handgun she kept in the office in case of robberies. This is the official story of the death of Sam Cooke, according to Bertha Franklin and Lisa Boyer, but not everyone thinks it's the true story. What we do know for sure is that before her altercation with Sam, Bertha Franklin had been speaking to her boss, Evelyn Carr, on the phone. After hearing the gunshots, Evelyn had hung up and called the police to send them to the Hacienda Motel. They arrived shortly after 3.15 a.m. to find Sam Cook's body collapsed on the floor. As they pulled up to the manager's office, the LAPD officers who reported to the scene could see Sam Cook's cherry red 1964 Ferrari still running outside. The door was open, suggesting that its driver had just stepped out for a moment. But Sam Cook would never drive the car again. Bertha took the cops to Sam's body, slumped over and leaning against the doorframe. He was wearing his sport jacket and one black shoe. The other had come off during the struggle. Though they had to wait for the coroner to determine the official time of death, it was obvious Sam was dead on arrival. As the police began to process the crime scene, a diminutive woman appeared at the far side of the parking lot. Lisa Boyer, illuminated in red and blue by the flashing police lights, walked back to the manager's office of the Hacienda Motel. She identified herself to the officers as the woman who had just called about being kidnapped. She told them that she came back from the phone booth when she saw the police cars in the parking lot. She identified Sam, the man dead on the office floor, as her kidnapper. An officer took her down to the station for questioning. Back at the scene, the cops recovered a bottle of scotch and a copy of a newspaper called Mohammed Speaks from Sam's car. The personal property they recovered from Sam's hotel room amounted to a watch, a money clip with $108, and some spare change. Later that morning, Barbara Cook and her two daughters were overwhelmed with well-wishers. There was a strange, almost party-like atmosphere at their house. Every few minutes, another blues legend rang the doorbell, joining the growing crowd inside the Hollywood home. Sam's old friends were calling the house, trying to find out if it really was true that he was gone. In the living room, his friends were pouring drinks, raising glasses to Sam's memory, and talking about seeing him only hours or days before his death. Any scrap of new information about the slang was discussed ad nauseum. Barbara was too overwhelmed to respond to the condolences and words of kindness. As two surprised LAPD detectives looked on, she calmly fixed herself a drink and went out to sit by the pool. Her sister Beverly took over answering the detectives' questions. The same question was on everyone's mind that day at the Cook House. What really happened to Sam? By December 16, 1964, details of the case had been splashed across every front page in the nation. Sam was a rising star, but his far-reaching fame surprised even the publications writing about him. 
One reporter at the LA Times recounted that the very first call he received asking for details about the slaying was from a newspaper in London. That same day, just five days after Sam Cooke's death, a coroner's hearing was held with a jury to determine if Lisa Boyer or Bertha Franklin could be prosecuted for their roles in Sam's death. The goal of the hearing was to provide a timeline of the night's events and determine whether Sam's injuries were consistent with the witnesses' descriptions. Both Bertha Franklin and Lisa Boyer took the stand, along with Evelyn Carr and a few guests who stayed at the Hacienda Motel that night. Lisa and Bertha were both subjected to polygraph tests to see if they were lying about any of the night's events. They both passed, and the results were entered into evidence. Polygraph machines measure a subject's heart rate, respiration, and skin conductivity while that subject is answering a series of questions. A polygraph examiner analyzes the results to find indications of deception. Here's the issue. There's no real proof that these three factors can actually indicate whether a person is lying or telling the truth. In fact, for this reason, Polygraph tests are largely inadmissible in court today. During her testimony, Lisa Boyer told the story of her alleged kidnapping. A notable discrepancy that appeared was that she claimed she was loudly asking Sam to take her back home when they arrived at the Hacienda Motel that night. During Bertha's testimony, when she was asked about their arrival to the motel, she claimed not to remember Lisa saying anything at all. She also didn't remember Lisa acting like she wanted to leave. This is a small discrepancy and doesn't rule out Lisa's story. However, when Sam's lawyer attempted to question Lisa and Bertha about it during the trial, he was quickly cut off. There was no further explanation of the disparity. This wasn't the only small detail that went unchallenged. Bertha had a 32 caliber gun registered in her name, but she shot Sam with a 22 caliber. The ownership of the 22 was never established. And then there was the question of Sam's money. When the police found Sam in the early hours of December 11th, he had a money clip with $108 and a small amount of change in his pocket. According to Barbara's statements to police, she thought he may have had $150 in his money clip before leaving the house that night. If that is the case, the missing $42 would make sense. He spent it going to Martoni's Diner in Hollywood, taking Lisa to PJ's Hollywood nightclub, and checking in to the Hacienda Motel. But Al Schmidt, a record producer who ate with Sam that night at Martoni's, claimed he was flashing a large wad of bills that could have easily been almost $1,000. Sam's stolen clothes and his wallet, which contained credit cards and his driver's license, were never recovered either. But the coroner's hearing rejected any attempt to bring up the subject of the missing money and personal effects. Besides the eyewitness statements, there was also testimony from a medical examiner who discussed Sam's state at the time of death. According to the doctor, Sam didn't have any drugs in his system, but had a blood alcohol content of 0.14%, well over the legal driving limit of 0.08%. At that level, most people lose coordination, slur speech, easily lose their balance, and can begin vomiting. 
The doctor was quoted as saying that alcohol may affect judgment at that level, explaining Sam's alleged temper and violent behavior. To Sam's family, friends, and fans, the hearing was a disappointing one. Testimony before the jury lasted only two hours, and Sam's lawyer was barely able to get a question in. When members of Sam's team attempted to ask about Lisa and Bertha's background or occupation, they were struck down by the judge. According to him, that information had no bearing on the night's events and shouldn't be included in the hearing. The jury deliberated for just 15 minutes before ruling Sam's death a justifiable homicide. They declared that Bertha Franklin had acted to protect life, limb, and property and would not be charged. Sam's family and friends were furious at the ruling. Sam's lawyer had no chance to dive deeper into the case, and the only narrative that was provided was that of Bertha Franklin and Lisa Boyer. And Sam was no longer around to provide his side of the story. Alan Klein, Sam Cooke's manager, released the following statement to the press. The story of Sam's death, as reported, is impossible. Sam was known to carry large sums of money with him at all times, and it is evident that someone is trying to cover up the true reasons for this tragedy. Sam was a happily married family man with deep religious convictions who was not a violent person, and the statements given out as to why he was killed are entirely inconsistent with the type of person he was. The strange nature of the case led many to speculate as to what really happened that night at the Hacienda Motel. Sam was not known to be a violent man, and his supporters thought it was impossible for the events to have happened the way Lisa and Bertha described. And then there was the quick coroner's jury trial, which stopped any further investigation into the case. Was it part of a cover-up? Or was it simply that, since it was a black man who was killed, the jury had no interest in pursuing justice? Rumors began to fly about why Sam was really killed. As more information came to light, it seemed more and more likely that even though she didn't pull the trigger, Lisa Boyer was responsible for Sam Cook's murder. We'll look into the alternate theories right after this. Now, back to the story. Almost the entire nation was in mourning in the aftermath of Sam Cook's death. On December 18, 1964, his family held the first of two funerals in Chicago, Illinois. 200,000 people came to say goodbye to Sam at the funeral home. The line of mourners wound its way outside the building and stretched for almost four city blocks. Fans and family cried and comforted each other outside the funeral home, grieving the loss of the beloved singer. The next day, on December 19th, another 5,000 mourners squeezed into the Mount Sinai Baptist Church in Los Angeles to hear Sam's eulogy. The church was built to fit only 1,500 people. The standing-room-only funeral took on the atmosphere of one of Sam's performances, with crowds of people packing into the aisles and shouting. Gospel singer Bessie Griffin broke down in tears as she tried to sing a hymn in Sam's honor. 
Sam's friend, R&B legend Ray Charles, stepped in for the grief-stricken Bessie and played an old hymnal called Angels Watching Over Me. The crowd sang along. Outside Mount Sinai, the giant crowd devolved into chaos. Fist fights broke out in the receiving line. One photographer was kicked out of the funeral for taking a picture of the casket. He stood outside the church selling prints of Sam's dead body for 25 cents apiece. Barbara had opted to top Sam's casket with a thick sheet of plastic so loved ones could see his face one last time. She held three days of viewings so all of Sam's fans could say goodbye. The choice only fueled the rumors and speculation swirling around Sam's murder. Singer Etta James claimed that Sam's body was so horribly beaten, he was practically decapitated. His nose was smashed and his hands were broken. Etta, along with some of Sam's other friends and family, believed these injuries were too extreme for a single 55-year-old woman to have inflicted. Rumors abounded that someone else may have been involved, but these claims were never substantiated. After shooting Sam, Bertha Franklin had attacked him with a heavy broom handle. The handle could have easily caused the damage to Sam's nose and hands and left him badly bruised. In addition, photos of the crime scene and of Sam's funeral show that his head was very much attached to his shoulders. Bertha Franklin was undoubtedly the one who killed Sam, but while Bertha may have pulled the trigger, many believe even today that some of the blood is on Lisa Boyer's hands. Lisa was arrested on January 11, 1965, exactly one month after Sam's death, but not in connection to the murder. She was caught in a vice sting when she agreed to have sex with an undercover cop for $40. As we mentioned before, Lisa was known as a role artist who posed as a sex worker and robbed the men who solicited sex from her. The theory that more and more of Sam's friends were starting to believe was that Lisa was in cahoots with Bertha, and both of them planned to rob Sam that night. The Hacienda, with its incredibly cheap $3 a night rate, was a popular spot for sex workers, and Lisa and Bertha may well have known each other before the night of Sam's death. The unanswered questions from the trial and Lisa's subsequent arrest led Sam Cooke's family to hire a private investigator to find out more about the mysterious woman. What the PI learned was that Lisa Boyer was a beautiful girl who liked to party. She was often seen hanging around a number of popular music spots, and according to witnesses, Sam had seen her around before the night of his death, when Lisa claimed they met for the first time. In fact, Sam and Lisa had previously went on a date. His friends and fellow musicians had warned him about her role artist past, but he took her out anyway. The investigator was less successful in looking into Bertha Franklin. There is not much information in the public record about Bertha, other than her involvement in Sam Cooke's murder. It's rumored that she was an ex-madam herself, who had previously run a brothel. Although that's hard to substantiate as well. Using the private investigator's information, Sam's family crafted a narrative where Lisa and Bertha were working together. In this version, 
Lisa lured Sam to the Hacienda Motel with the intention of robbing him. Bertha helped her set it up. But the family still couldn't say whether or not Bertha and Lisa had planned to kill Sam that night, or if it was just a robbery that went terribly wrong. When the private investigator failed to turn up more information, Barbara Cook asked that the investigation be terminated. She told Alan Klein, Sam's manager, will it bring him back? Will it get him out of the room with that woman? I have two children and I don't want to put them through this. Sam Cook was Barbara's childhood sweetheart and the father of her children. She mourned deeply after Sam's death, but was ready to move on soon enough, even a bit sooner than most people thought was appropriate. In March 1965, Barbara Cook married Bobby Womack, Sam Cook's best friend. Bobby claims that he married Barbara out of sympathy and mutual love and grief for Sam. He feared that if he left Barbara alone, she would commit suicide. Sam's parents and siblings saw the matter differently. Once they caught wind of the wedding, they were furious. They were suspicious that Barbara and Bobby may have had something to do with Sam's death. They could have gotten rid of Sam so they could be together. Three of Sam's brothers met Barbara and Bobby in a Chicago hotel not long after the marriage and made their displeasure known. They beat Bobby senseless for what they saw as his betrayal of his late best friend. For what it's worth, there was no evidence uncovered to implicate Barbara and Bobby in Sam's murder, and their marriage turned out to be short-lived and dysfunctional. The couple divorced in 1970, after Barbara discovered Bobby had been sleeping with Barbara's 17-year-old daughter, Linda. Barbara allegedly asked Bobby for the divorce after firing a shotgun at his head. After Sam Cooke's murder, Lisa Boyer and Bertha Franklin's lives were irrevocably changed as well. Bertha Franklin received numerous death threats from Sam's fans, she was harassed so badly that she quit her job at the Hacienda Motel and moved to Michigan. After the coroner's jury neglected to charge Bertha in the death of Sam Cook, Bertha filed a civil lawsuit against Sam's family. She claimed $200,000 in damages for her physical injuries and mental anguish due to the event. She settled in May of 1967 for $30,000, which would be about $230,000 today. Soon after that, Bertha died of a heart attack. Lisa Boyer also had a tragic, yet more violent end to her story. In 1979, she was convicted of murder in the second degree for the death of her lover. Unfortunately, not much record exists of the case, but she was sentenced to 25 years in jail. That's where Lisa's record ends. Presumably, after serving her sentence, Lisa was released back into free society and tried her hardest to fade into obscurity. She never faced any sort of real investigation for her part in Sam Cooke's murder. In the months and years directly following Sam's murder, there was an outcry against what many saw as a quick and slapdash trial. A group of black DJs and radio personalities came together to demand further investigation of the case by the LAPD or FBI. The Los Angeles Herald-Dispatch 
published a front-page satire of the coroner's inquest shortly after it was held in December 1964. The article suggested that the decision not to investigate further was racially biased. They thought the coroner and judge didn't care if one more black man was dead in Los Angeles. Muhammad Ali agreed with this sentiment. He said in a radio interview, I don't like the way he was shot. I don't like the way it was investigated. If Cook had been Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, or Ricky Nelson, the FBI would be investigating yet, and the woman would have been sent to prison. The greater soul and blues community has held on to the belief that what was stated at the coroner's jury was not the full story of what happened. The motive for a robbery is there. Sam was a famous music artist and was allegedly flashing around a roll of cash the entire evening. Lisa Boyer was an experienced grifter and often robbed Johns and dates alike. Could he have been killed as part of a robbery gone wrong? Was it true that Lisa and Bertha worked together to kill Sam for his money? Since there's been no further investigation, it's hard to find many facts to support these claims. And as more and more people involved with the case grow old and pass away over the years, the chance of finding any new evidence has grown even slimmer. But the impact of Sam's death on the music community and nation as a whole has only grown stronger with time. The single version of A Change Is Gonna Come, Sam Cooke's magnum opus, wasn't released until December 22, 1964, almost two weeks after his death. The song was Sam's way of protesting the status quo in America and expressing hope for an end to racial discrimination and segregation. The song had already been released on Sam's album, Ain't That Good News, on March 1st, 1964, but this posthumous single release cemented its legacy. Civil rights leaders and musicians took up the song as an anthem, dedicating themselves to the changed world Sam had sung about. On July 2nd, 1964, the first step towards that change came when President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law. To many black activists, it was one of the most important laws since the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. The Civil Rights Act outlawed discrimination based on race, skin color, religion, sex, or national origin. It also prohibited segregation and discriminatory voter registration requirements. Musicians like Sam Cooke, Bob Dylan, Odetta, and others had been asking for this change to come for years. They may not have been personally responsible for drafting the act, but it's always been the role of artists to bring attention to causes and ask questions of their listeners. Without the support of so many pop culture figures, it may have taken even longer for civil rights legislation to gain traction. Sam Cooke also had a more immediate, tangible legacy that he left behind. His record company, Sar Records, launched the career of dozens of black soul and blues artists. Bobby Womack, Billy Preston, Johnny Taylor, and Mel Carter all got their start in the industry thanks to Sam. Sam's influence on popular music had direct results as well. 
His gospel-inspired, pop-friendly soul music and showmanship inspired artists like Al Green, Curtis Mayfield, Stevie Wonder, and Marvin Gaye. A 19-year-old Aretha Franklin gave some of her first traveling performances on Sam's tour. Had Sam lived, it's incredible to think what he could have created. He was struck down at only 33, just when his star was beginning to rise. If he hadn't been at the Hacienda Motel that night in 1964, there's no doubt that he would have gone on to be one of the most influential, legendary musicians of the 20th century. Coming up, we'll dive deeper into the impact Sam Cooke could have had if he wasn't killed in 1964. Now, back to the story. In the months before his murder, Sam Cooke was poised to take the world by storm. Had he survived the shooting at the Hacienda Motel, he would have dominated the music scene for years to come. Sam was already a hit artist and was able to make fans out of black and white audiences alike. In just over six years, from 1957 to 1964, he wrote or recorded 29 songs that charted on the Billboard Top 40. This was more hits than Buddy Holly, Little Richard, and Jerry Lee Lewis combined. These songs are still making waves years later. Artists like James Taylor, Jimmy Buffett, Rod Stewart, and Michael Bolton have all released charting covers of Sam's songs. Even though he only had 33 years on Earth, Sam changed the musical and cultural landscape of the United States. In 1986, 22 years after his death, Sam was one of the first 10 inductees into the newly established Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Had he continued his career after 1964, he surely would have written or recorded dozens more hits that would become part of the American cultural landscape. In July 1964, not long before Sam's death, he had played the legendary Copacabana in New York City. The live album of this show, Sam Cooke at the Copa, was released in October 1964. The Copacabana was a huge, career-making nightclub. It only booked the best acts of the day, and Sam was one of them. Playing and recording at the Copa was a sign that his star was on the rise. If Sam were able to continue on this trajectory, maybe the next stop would have been Madison Square Garden, the Hollywood Bowl, or maybe even the silver screen. According to fellow blues musician Solomon Burke, Sam had just done a screen test in Hollywood shortly before his murder. There were plans in the works to create a late-night musical and comedic variety show with Sam as the star, similar to programs like The Dean Martin Show or The Ed Sullivan Show. The show was tentatively titled Sam Cook Cooks. If Sam was this influential at only 33 years of age, he could have become one of the biggest stars of the 20th century had his life not been cut short. Beyond Sam's own music, he also had a sharp business acumen and a passion to create his own music companies. As we mentioned, Sam established SAR Records in 1961 with his friend and songwriting associate J.W. Alexander. He envisioned SAR as a venue for talented black musicians who were struggling in the mainstream music world. 
black musicians had to fight for the same opportunities white musicians were freely given at major record labels, and so-called black music, like rhythm and blues and soul, were often passed over for pop acts. Much like Barry Gordy's Motown Records, founded two years earlier in 1959, SAR Records was meant to support black soul artists with the intention of mainstream crossover success. Sam had led the way with his own career, and he wanted to pass those opportunities along to the next generation. Motown began as a small independent record label, but from 1961 to 1969, it had 79 records that reached the top 10 of the Billboard charts. Thanks to Motown, black soul artists were heard nationwide. SAR started similarly with a small but mighty roster. Sam signed his childhood friend Johnny Taylor, the Valentinos, Bobby Womack, Billy Preston, Mel Carter, and others. If he hadn't died in 1964, Sar most likely would have become as big as Motown. With the type of talent Sam was attracting and Sam's ear for pop music, the company could have been a formidable hit factory. Instead, Sar folded after Sam died in 1964. Sam had also founded a publishing imprint and management firm with the same intentions. CAG's music was meant to manage black soul and pop artists and represented many of the musicians that were signed with SAR. Had Sam not died, CAG's could have made crossover stars of many more musicians throughout the years. Sam's role in the civil rights movement also would have undoubtedly grown had he been able to continue fighting. Sam was also known to his friends as a scholar. His friend and touring partner, Bobby Womack, recalled him sitting in the back of the tour bus and devouring anything put in front of him, from Play-Doh to Playboy. But in the early 1960s, Sam's friendships with civil rights figures like Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Muhammad Ali led him to become a student of black history and politics. He read literature by a wide range of black authors, philosophers, politicians, and thinkers. Inspired by the words of the scholars he read and his own experiences with racism and discrimination, Sam wrote his first and only protest song, A Change Is Gonna Come, in 1963. By all accounts, he had every intention of continuing his journey into activism, if he had the chance. A Change Is Gonna Come inspired artists like Joan Baez and Willie Nelson. It's been featured in multiple lists of the best songs of all time, from Rolling Stone to Pitchfork to NPR. It was even selected for admission to the Library of Congress in 2007. Perhaps if Sam Cooke had lived to keep making music, he may have written more songs in support of civil rights. In the coming years, he might have joined his musical peers in protesting the involvement of United States troops in Vietnam. If we take a look at one of Sam Cooke's contemporaries, we see the shadow of Sam's spirit. Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, needs no introduction. One of the biggest voices to come out of the R&B community, Aretha belted her way into the American songbook with songs like Think, Respect, and You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Aretha's music often had a feminist message, and she tackled the subject of freedom with gusto. She fought for the same causes in her personal life as well. 
Perhaps Sam would have been right there with Aretha when she called for the freedom of activist and Black Panther Angela Davis after her imprisonment in 1970. Or like Aretha, Sam may have written songs in support of Native American and indigenous people's rights. Sam was just beginning his journey into activism when he died. There's no doubt he would have continued to use his platform to speak on behalf of downtrodden communities. When Bobby Womack was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2009, he reflected on how the world had changed for the better, just like Sam hoped it would. Sam Cooke's voice was silenced long before his song was over. Never at a loss for words, he would have had much more to say about the way things were changing for the Black community over the years. He was a visionary who saw the world the way he wanted it to be. He worked to create things, like his own record label, to make that vision a reality. For all the progress that was made during the civil rights movement of the 1960s, we're still far from total equality. Many of today's musicians of color have taken up the torch, using their music as a platform to draw attention to racial issues. Sam Cooke's drive and adventurous spirit took him to the top of the charts during his short career. Had he lived past his 33 years, he would have kept making hits that argued for social change. Meanwhile, the many people still alive who were touched by Sam's music are still fighting for the day when that change finally comes. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Assassinations for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Assassinations was written by Molly Quinlan and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 